Let's just pray. God, we do believe that there is no one else who deserves any praises that we might sing above Jesus. And so we know that he is due much honor, much more honor and and glory than we're even able to give him. And so, God, we give you what we have this morning. We do want to bring ourselves before you as an offering. God, we want to now as a body, offer up to you our, our ears, our hearts, our minds. Would your Holy Spirit be pleased to come and work through your word to build up your church this morning uh, through your word. And so, God, thank you uh, that you can do that. And we pray that that would happen and that as that happens, Jesus would be exalted. We would be encouraged here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been uh, working uh, this summer through a series in Second Chronicles. We're going to end that today and move on to uh, a couple of just kind of standalone things, but also getting back to for the fall into our series on Mark, which we started a long time ago. It's taken us quite some time to get through there. Uh, looking forward to getting back into Mark. Um, you see in your uh, sermon outline, there's a section of the bulletin that you just pull out. It's got a spot for sermon notes and then an application guide throughout the week. Go ahead and and turn there if you'd like and take some notes if that's helpful. It does say on the bottom there as well, here's what's coming up over the next weeks. But we're going to finish up this series today in the book of 2 Chronicles. I uh, began looking around for resources, just wondering what some other pastors have done as they've preached through 2 Chronicles and came to find that not a lot of pastors preach through 2 Chronicles. Uh, And... uh, and, and and sometimes as I was studying and preparing to preach, and sometimes even as I've been preaching, I've said, like, well, I, I understand why. Uh, it is it is a challenge. I'm a new pastor and trying to figure this kind of stuff out. Um, and, uh, and there have been some challenges as I've gone through this. Maybe it's been challenging even for you to sit, uh, but... But there have also been times that have been really rich, and, and I do believe, and continue, God continues to confirm to me, that the truth uh, from 2 Timothy 3, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for cha- teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, I get my versions mixed up. So there's a bunch of words there, but the Word of God is useful for all sorts of purposes in our lives. And so I hope that this series has been useful to you. We've called this series Restoration. We started in Second Chronicles 29, and we're going to get today through the end of chapter 36. The series is called Restoration. Usually the time that we hear the word restoration in our culture is when it has to do with a building. There's maybe some old building that was once something glorious, right, and looked really, really good, some beautiful piece of architecture that had a great use at one time, and then over time it gets worn down and falls into ruin and needs restoration. So we have a building like that, the Metropolitan Opera House here in Iowa Falls, started in 1899. So over the years it has gotten worn down and then restored, and then worn down again and then restored again, just kind of uh, maybe updating technology or whatever needs to happen. But, but that's usually how we talk about the work of restoration. Restoration is, it's often concentrated at one period of time, but it is an ongoing process. Restoration doesn't just happen once and then it's done. Restoration needs to happen continually. And so as we've gone through the book of Second Chronicles, we have seen God being faithful to His people and to His promises, doing this work of restoration that needed continually to happen. That, that, that God's people would humble themselves before Him and repent and turn to Him and worship Him, and, then, and He would do a work of restoration among them. 
And then generations following would fall away, and he would again come and, and, and do a work of restoration, using a king to come and lead in that way. And you might remember, if you've been here for the series, that the book of, books of First and Second Chronicles were written to a group of people who were needing to experience a work of restoration under God's leadership. They were returned exiles. They had been in exile in Babylon and were now returning to the land. And so the chronicler is giving us a history of God's restoring work throughout history to remind them that God is still the same God. He still works in the same ways. And our response ought to be one of humble repentance and worship before our God. And so we've seen a lot of restoration take place in Chronicles. And we can relate to the people because like the returned exiles to whom it was originally addressed, we long for restoration in our day, don't we? Most of us want to see things better than they were. Now that's that's our goal many times in a lot of different ways. But as we've seen throughout this book and as we will see today in this passage, we are constantly in need of God's grace. We, are, we don't just need God's grace at one moment and then we're good. We are, we are constantly in need of God's grace at all times and in so many ways and for so many reasons. And we're just going to list out some of those here today. We're not going to. Last week I read through the entire chapter 34. You guys were standing for like 12 minutes. Not going to do that this week because we're doing chapters 35 and 36. And so what I'm going to read is just the last few verses of chapter 36. And so if you are able to, would you please stand as we read God's word this morning. Second Chronicles chapter 36. We're going to start in verse 17. Second Chronicles 36, verse 17, this is God's word, and he says this, Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged, and he gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. You can be seated. I wanted to start there so that we could see how this would end. But we need to back up a little bit, so, so we'll back up to last week we left off with King Josiah, who had begun doing a number of reforms, restoration, 
movement through King Josiah and under his leadership, which began for him at a very young age. For years before Josiah came, God's people generally failed to worship God. They were kind of doing their own thing, worshiping a bunch of idols, engaged in all sorts of sin and evil. That's what had happened for generations before Josiah's time. And so it's quite likely that nobody in Josiah's day had experienced one of the most significant events that God's people were required to experience, and that is remembering God's deliverance through the Passover. Most of the people probably had not experienced this. And so we read in chapter 35, verse 1, it says this, Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the first month. So this this important event in the life of God's people had been ignored probably for generations. And now, the last time we heard about Passover was with King Hezekiah, which would have been the great-grandfather of Josiah. That's the last time we heard anything about Passover being established again amongst God's people. And so there had been this long drought, and now under King Josiah, God's people were once again going to keep the Passover. Passover is a time in which God's people would remember when God delivered them from being slaves and turned them into redeemed ones. That's a time of remembrance for God's people. That was very important for them to be a part of it. It involved a sacrifice and it involved a feast. And so there's details here in chapter 35, which we won't take time to go over. There is verses 1 to 6. We see them really preparing for the sacrifice. And then we see the sacrifice being performed in verses 10 and following. But I want to point out one thing. Well, one thing we should note in verse 11, that this sacrifice, this time, if you look at, we're going to look at verse 7 here in a second, but if you look at verse 11 first, it says, And they slaughtered the Passover lamb, and the priests threw the blood that they received from them, while the Levites flayed the sacrifices. Okay, when, when sacrifices were made, we, kinda, we, we, we have everything kind of sterilized here in our culture. We don't deal with death and blood and those kinds of things very often unless you're in certain professions. Most of us don't have to see this. But sacrifices, the sacrifices that took place over Passover were very bloody affairs. A, a big bloody mess, really. But I want us to notice verse 7. Verse 7 says this. Then Josiah contributed to the lay people as Passover offerings for all who were present, lambs and young goats from the flock to the number of 30,000 and 3,000 bulls, and these were from the king's possessions. One thing you'd note if you looked back and compared this with Hezekiah's Passover is that this is almost double the amount that was needed for the sacrifice to take place. Okay? So there are a lot of people. Hezekiah, you remember, invited this large and diverse group of people to gather together again for the Passover. We looked at that a few chapters ago. But now this crowd is even larger. There are many people gathering together for the Passover here in Second Chronicles chapter 35. But did you notice where the material for the sacrifice, where the, where the blood for the sacrifice, where the, the things to be sacrificed, how are they provided for the people? Who does that? 
it says they were from the king's possessions. This is a time when, when I think one of those times where we see shadows all throughout the Old Testament pointing us forward to Jesus. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Lamb of God who would be slain to take away the sins of the world. Right? That, that it, was, it was necessary for the king himself, in this case, to provide the sacrifice for the people. They couldn't afford it. And that just reminds me, reminds us who read now the Old Testament in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It reminds us that we so needed Jesus to come and pay the price. That God is the one who, out of His own self, provided us with His eternal Son. He gave us His own Son, the Lamb of God who would come to pay the price for our sins. And so that's why we get together once a month and we drink the cup and we eat the bread because we often forget God's people at this time, they had forgotten. They had forgotten what God had done for them. They weren't even remembering the Passover. They had forgotten so much. And because it's so easy for us to forget what it is that God has done for us in Christ, it's so easy for us to forget what it was that Jesus accomplished when He was put to death on the cross and when He was raised from the dead. So we remember that. Monthly we do it in our church. We get together around the table taking the bread and drinking the cup so that we might remember and not forget. God's people here had forgotten. We are so grateful for Jesus who comes. And we don't need a priest to offer a sacrifice for us because 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. You could read more if you want to just see how Jesus is really our great high priest. You could read Hebrews chapter 10, 11 to 14. Maybe you want to mark that down and read it later. We need God's grace because we, like God's people here in Second Chronicles, we too often forget who God is and what He's done for us. God's people had done that in Josiah's day. But the greatest gift of grace that God has given us, the thing we ought to remember, if we forget everything else, it doesn't matter as much as that we remember what it is that God has done for us in Christ. Revelation 5.9 says, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The response of the people in Revelation 5 is to fall at Jesus' feet, worshiping Him, saying, You are worthy, because they have remembered what it was that Jesus came to accomplish. We need God's grace because we forget. We also need God's grace because we're foolish. If you looked at the end of chapter 35, it gives the account of how it was that King Josiah came to die. This is 13 years after this first Passover here. Josiah, like other kings, his good reign ends with some foolish decisions. The king of Egypt, you see, the king of Egypt was on a mission. It had nothing to do with the people of Judah. He was on a mission, and there was going to be a war. He was going to join on one side of that war, and all he needed to do was travel through the land of Judah to get where he was going to do battle. He didn't, he didn't care about what was going on there. God, had, God has actually told him, this is what you are to go do. God is sovereign over all nations, okay? even, even the Egyptians. And so the Egyptian king is traveling through. That's all he wants to do. But Josiah interrupts him. Look at verses 21 and 22 in chapter 35. But he, Josiah, 
no, sorry, the king of Egypt sent envoys to him saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I am not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Okay, so the the command, the, the warning from God through the mouth of the king of Egypt is, Hey, listen, we're not here to mess with you. God says, just let us through. Let us take care of our business. You keep doing your thing, okay? We're cool with each other. See, supposing God. But verse 22, it says, Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And what happens after that is that Josiah is killed in that battle. It was a foolish decision. Earlier in his life, you might remember that Josiah was very responsive to God's word. Even as a young man, when he heard God's word one time through the prophetess Huldah, his response was to listen and to obey and to take immediate action, to humble himself before God, gather the people together and tell them this is what God says. That's what he was doing earlier in his life. But now, as he gets to what is going to be the end of his life, He hears God's word through somebody else again, and this time, he doesn't listen. And it ends up costing him his life. He needs God's grace, Josiah does, because he was foolish. But the good news is, even though he was foolish, God keeps his promise. You might remember that God had made this promise to Josiah. It came through Huldah. This promise that that Josiah would not see the kind of destruction that God was going to pour out on his people. That Josiah would not live to see that. That was a promise that God made, and that promise was kept. The promise was also made that Josiah would be laid to rest in peace near his fathers. And that also, we see here, is kept. So we are foolish, yet God keeps his promises. Aren't you glad that God doesn't pull away? Anytime we make some kind of foolish decision and say, oh, well, I told you so. Aren't you glad? Like, we don't get that little, like, game over sign just flash in front of our life and then the little game over music plays. You know, like, <laughs> I-, I was going to try and sing it, but I can't sing anything. Uh, so I'm not going to do that. But you know, like some game over sound. I'm so grateful for God's grace that no matter how many times I act foolishly, God doesn't say, game over, Jeremy, I'm done. He doesn't do that. God keeps his promises. Sometimes it's just little, I mean, I can, how many times, just think think of the last week of your life. How many foolish things, how many foolish words have you spoken? How many foolish thoughts have you thought? How many foolish things have you done? My family is away for the weekend. They're at a wedding reception up in Minnesota, and so I was home alone for a couple days, and so just my personality like, well, I'm going to get some stuff done and get some stuff done at the church, get some stuff done at home. So I made this huge list, and I was just working myself crazy till about midnight last night. Um, and and part, of my, part of my craziness was uh, I run a lot, but I've been kind of slacking for like the last month, and I've done this so many times and I should know better by now but I'm just foolish. So like, that's, that's the definition of foolish. Like, you know what to do. You, you might even have an idea like, hey, I shouldn't do this, but you just do it. Like, I had this idea. Well, I haven't run for a long time, and so probably the best thing for me to do is to try and like make up for all that at one time. 
So yesterday, um, I, I almost stopped at your house, Dewey, because I was like, I was going past you, I was like, I might die here. Um, because, because, uh, because I was trying to do five miles, which is about the longest I usually go, and I was trying to do it like I keep track of my times and I like my personality again, like I want to I wanna beat my record time. Well, I haven't been doing very well, and it was hot, and I had been working already all day. It wasn't a great time to try and beat my record in a five-mile run, but that's exactly what I tried to do. And I don't walk very well today. I'm really tired. I'm sore, all sorts of other things. That was foolish. But I'm so grateful for God's grace that he didn't just say, you know what, Jeremy, you're dumb, and so you will have a heart attack right now. Uh, I'm so grateful. Like, that would have been deserved. That I would have understood if that would have happened. But God was gracious to me, even though I was foolish in that small way. But how many times, even, even with moral decisions that we make, are we foolish? How many hurtful words do we speak? How many foolish words do we say that we don't intend, or maybe we do intend, to hurt other people? And we do that, but God is so gracious with us. And He doesn't pull away His promise because of our foolishness. So grateful for God's grace in that way. I'm also grateful for God's grace because we're unfaithful many times. So King Josiah dies and we wonder, is the hope of restoration done? This king who came to do such great work of restoration, now that he dies, are, are, are we hopeless? And it kind of seems that way as you begin to read chapter 36. If you read through the beginning of chapter 36, you would find king after king doing evil in the sight of the Lord, and leading God's people astray. It's really a dreadful decline that we see here in these first verses of chapter 36. God has been so gracious in withholding His judgment to this point. He hasn't just given His people a second chance. He's given them a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth chance. He's given them so many chances. And He always says, I'm going to withhold my judgment for now, but it's going to come. And his people continue, they respond sometimes to his grace with repentance, but that only lasts for a period of time. His people just continue to rebel against him. And so, then we get to verse 14, and verse 14 summarizes it this way. Our hearts sink as we read this. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that He had made holy in Jerusalem. They weren't just unfaithful. It says, exceedingly unfaithful. So now you've got to say, well, God, now you're going to give up, right? I mean, how many chances have you given them? Isn't your work of restoration just going to have to end? Why don't you just choose a different people? It's obvious that these people are responding in ways that are not anything like faithful. In fact, they are exceedingly unfaithful. So now God's going to give up, right? No more mercy, no more grace. He's just done. Not yet. It says in verse 16, look at verse 16 in chapter 36. God's going to give them his word. He's going to send it through prophets. But look at what it says. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Does your heart sink as you read that? I mean, you, you, we've, we've, we've gone on this roller coaster ride where we see all this work of restoration and God's judgment rightfully deserved by his people. But he keeps withholding it and saying, not yet. Not yet, 
Not yet. I will show you mercy. I will show you grace. And he, and he does that in one way that he does that is he keeps sending them prophets. He keeps sending them. Listen, we are, our Bible's set up a little bit different uh, than, than the Hebrew Bible would be. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, by the way, Second Chronicles is the last book of their Bible. So this is the last chapter of the Hebrew Bible in the way that they order their books. But if we would read through the Bible chronologically, with may, which maybe some of you have done, you'd be reading this history stuff at the same time you'd be reading some prophets. Because God was sending his prophets to speak to God's people at specific times. God continued to pursue his people with his word. But we read here in verse 16, at this point in history, God's people said, I don't care, God. I don't care what you're saying through your prophets. I don't care about your word, God. We're going to do what we're going to do. And so it says at the end of verse 16, the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. The judgment that they had deserved time and time again was finally going to come. God, like a good father, was going to discipline his rebellious children. This reminds us, of course, that God would send us his word. And here on this side of the the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are reminded of the fact that, that, that God has given us his word. We have more of God's word than the people did at this time, for sure. We have the written record of what the prophets said at that point. We have the New Testament. We have God's word given to us. And God has given us his word, Jesus Christ himself as well. God gave us Jesus. And and if you might remember, uh, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, because I love his boldness, is Acts chapter 7. And you might remember that that he uses very much similar language. Stephen there is speaking. Stephen, you know, he's not even, he's not even one of the elders and, and teachers in the church. He's a deacon, um, but he, is, he wants to preach. And so he gets uh, kind of put on trial, so to speak. And in that trial, he wants to have one last opportunity to preach. And so he preaches this great sermon, walking God's people through their history, much like the chronicler does, right? Walking God's people through their history. And he ends, much like the chronicler does, saying, God sent you his word and look what you did with it. And so in, in, kind of in that same spirit, in, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen ends his sermon. It is not a seeker-sensitive sermon. It is not one that makes people kind of melt and say, oh, wasn't that nice. He ends his sermon by saying this, Look in Acts chapter 7. This is verse 51. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one who you have now betrayed and murdered. Stephen is saying to them, the same thing that the chronicler said hundreds of years ago is the same thing that's happening now. God has again sent you his word. His word in his son, Jesus Christ, has come to you and you again have rejected that. You've rejected God's word. You've rejected God's son. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 3, I love this passage, says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The truth is, God hasn't changed at all and people haven't changed much in all these years. We are still forgetful. We are still foolish. We are still exceedingly unfaithful. We are still deserving of God's wrath and God's judgment. And there's only one way to avoid it, and that is through God's provision of the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. The truth is, and this is the last point, that we are captives. The passage that that I read as we kind of got started here this morning was the last part of chapter 36. And there we read about how God's people came to be captives. It was an ugly thing. We read it, we hear even in the news today about some, some ugly things going on in our world, and this was an ugly thing that was going on in the world in that day. And interestingly, it is God who is at work bringing the, these things to come about. So it says in verse 17, Therefore he, meaning God, brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. And if you don't think that's fair, they didn't think it was fair either. Either did a prophet named Habakkuk. You could read about that in his book. Like, God, how could you do that? Do you know what the Chaldeans are like? Do you know what kind of evil and sin they're involved in? And you're going to raise them up to judge us? God says yes. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and listen to this, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. No compassion. God, it says, I kind of skipped over this, but in verse 15 it did say that God, the reason that God kept sending them messengers is because he had compassion on his people. God had compassion on his people. The, ba- the Babylonians or the Chaldeans did not have compassion, had no compassion, and so it was ugly. You had brothers who probably had to watch their brother being killed. You had sisters who had to watch their sister be kidnapped. You had, you had moms and dads who had to watch their kids be taken away. It was an ugly time in the life of God's people. This is what God said would come. This is the kind of judgment that they they did deserve as they continued to rebel against Him. Their sin would eventually lead them into exile. They would be held captive by the Babylonians. But did you notice how the book ended? It didn't end with their captivity. It didn't end with their captivity. Remember, the book of 1 and 2 Chronicles are written to the people that that are after this time. right? And after this time... God's people are no longer captives in Babylon. The people that are hearing the message of 1 and 2 Chronicles, they are free people back in the land. And so we know that it doesn't end with their captivity. You wonder, well, how is God going to do that? Well, 70 years after it happened, it says in verses 22 and 23 this, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him and let him go up. God is going to continue on a work of restoration. God is certainly sovereign over the nations. We've seen that. He's already spoken just in this passage through the king of Egypt. He has raised up the Chaldeans, and now he has stirred up the heart of the king of Persia. The Persians took over for the Babylonians, so the Babylonians were the ones that kidnapped God's people, brought them into exile. The Persians came and took over the Babylonians, and this Persian king says, hey, you can go. Go build your house for your God again, and may the Lord be with you. Let him go up. God is the one who brings this all about. Don't you just love God's grace? Over and over and over again, we see God's grace. But you get to the end of this book, which, remember, is, again, the last book in the Hebrew Bible. And it's one of those, you ever watch, like, a movie where you get to the end, or maybe you read a book, and you get to the end, and you're like, oh, there's got to be a sequel. I know there's more after this, right? And that's the kind of feeling you get when you get to the end of Second Chronicles 36. Oh, I know, there's going to be a sequel to this. And there is. It's called the New Testament, and we have it. We're so grateful for God's Word. And, and it helps us to connect with, with this message here in Second Chronicles chapter 36. I want to end with just some application. We can relate to the exiles, can't we? The New Testament often uses the image of captivity or slavery to describe who we are, the way that our sin controls us. Romans 6 is filled with all sorts of that language. But in, in John chapter 8, Jesus himself says this. Listen to what Jesus says in John 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You feel that, don't you? You feel that, that, that how many times do you know what you ought to do and you don't do it? How many times do you know what you ought not to do and you do it anyway? How many times do you fall and stumble into the same dark hole? Right? So many different times that we can say yes, amen, even if Dewey doesn't hold up the sign. We can say amen. You can do it. All right. He wanted to do it one more time. I know it. Amen. Like, we, we know, we know our propensity towards sin. Christian, do you remember how deep the darkness was that you once lived in before Christ? Do you remember how heavy the chains of, a, of addiction to sin felt on you? Or maybe you didn't even feel them because you were living in such darkness that you didn't even know you were a captive to sin. Sin is a miserable master. And we cry out like Paul did at the end of Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? But he answers his own question because he knows the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's our answer. How do we get set free? We can relate to those that have been enslaved, but we can also relate to those who have been set free. How do we get set free? Listen, I know there's probably some people here today, and you're, I don't know, maybe you came to church today because you're curious. Maybe you came to church today because you always come to church. But you're feeling in some way the weight and the heaviness, and you're recognizing, maybe as I talk about sin, and you're maybe doing some reflecting on your life, looking at your own sin and saying, yes, I feel controlled. I feel as though sin is my master. I feel like a captive. When you're talking about captivity, I'm relating to that. I feel enslaved. 
feel like my sin is controlling me, like, I, like this addiction that I'm dealing with or whatever it is, I just can't let go. I'm living in darkness. You want to know how to be set free? In John 8, right after Jesus says, he who practices sin is a slave to sin, that's 8.34. In John 8.36, Jesus says this, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Right? You need Jesus to set you free. You can't wiggle yourself free from the death grip of sin by trying to be a good person, showing up at church more frequently. The grip is too hard. Only Jesus can set you free. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You get set free, it's a gift. It's not, it's not, it's not, you can't wiggle your way out of it. It's something that has to be provided for you. That's why God sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross in our place. It's a gift that we must receive by faith. And so how is it that we move from, from death to life? How is it that we move from captivity to freedom? How do we move from being controlled by sin to be controlled by a Savior? One of the best passages in all of Scripture, I think, is Ephesians chapter 2. First few verses of that say this. Just hear God's Word. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've memorized it. I want you to hear it again. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God. Right? We were like the rest, by nature, children of wrath, but God. What did God do? How is it that we move from being dead to being alive, from being captive to being free? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. The truth is, Christian, non-Christian, all of us, we desperately need God's grace at so many times, at all times, and in so many different ways, for so many different reasons. We need it because we're forgetful. We need it because we're foolish. We need it because we are exceedingly unfaithful. We need it because we are captives and slaves to our sin, and Jesus is the only answer. It said in that one passage in in 2 Chronicles 36, until there was no remedy. Well, listen, there is a remedy. There is a way that we can be set free. And it is through Christ alone. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus, and as you're hearing this today, maybe you're saying, you know what? I know I'm a captive. I've been fooling myself, thinking I'm free, but I'm not really free. I want to experience real freedom. I want to experience God's restoring work in my own life. And what you need to do today is you need to trust in Jesus. 
Submit yourself to him. Let him be your master. Maybe what you want to do is you want to just pray with me. So we're going to sing a closing song, and, and I'm just going to sit up here in the front row. Everybody else is going to stand and sing. But if you just want me to pray for you about something, I'm going to be hanging out up here just waiting to do that. And so if you want to come and just sit by me, um, you can tell me a little bit about what you want me to pray for. If you want me to just pray for you, I'll just pray for you. We're going to be singing a song that asks God to continually speak to us through His Word. It's a song that you would think, well, that would fit really well before a sermon. We're singing it after a sermon because we don't believe that God only speaks when I stand up here behind a pulpit with a microphone on my face. That we believe that God desires to speak to His people through His Word all the time. And we believe that as God speaks to us, and we have ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive what God has to say, it will change us by His power and for His glory. And so we're going to sing that, sing that song kind of as a prayer together as we close. And again, if you want me to pray with you, I'll be right up here. So worship team, could you come up as I pray? God, we are so thankful. So thankful that in our foolishness, in our forgetfulness, in our unfaithfulness, in our captivity, that there is a remedy. And that remedy is your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain, so that He might, by His blood, bring people to you from every tongue and tribe and nation. We recognize that what we're a part of here this morning is something way bigger than a hundred people sitting here. That you are at work, your gospel is advancing throughout the nations, and we are so grateful for your sovereignty over all things. We've seen that even in this passage, that you're a God who is sovereign over everything. And so if there are people here today, God, who are wondering, if they're feeling maybe their life is out of control, I pray that they would just be encouraged today to trust that you who rule over the nations have their lives under control. God, and I pray that there there are those this morning that are feeling captive to their sin feeling like slaves, feeling like there is no way out, that they would believe the truth that Jesus spoke, that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. God, we want to be a church that's free, free to admit that we are desperately in need of grace, free to admit that we are a messed up church, a group of broken people whose only hope always is Christ Jesus. We know that that is true. And so God, would you be at work throughout the week, as we, your servants, want to listen to you speaking to us through your word so that we might grow and be built up, that we might encourage one another and build one another up, and that in the end, Jesus might be glorified as his church is built. In his name we pray. Amen.